Well, every night I go out running Or riding my bike I like the sweat, I like the flow I get, I like the feeling of the night air Hitting my lungs I like the feeling of rain While sticking out my tongue Sometimes I like to pretend I'm on a secret mission Sometimes I'm just making sure it's not something out there happening That I'm missing And I swear to you I get a real high from it Fuck alcohol and fuck all that shit and fuck TV Let's meet up in our bikes down by the old train bridge I'll race you downtown and I'll show you what you miss from me inside And let's live our lives tonight Let's ride our bikes into the And we're on. Uh, welcome, folks, to the Garrett Schalke podcast. I am your host, uh, Garrett Schalke. And uh, today's guest is uh, a long time coming. And I say that because uh, I was previously had the pleasure of being on his podcast. And now it is time for me to return the favor. Well, right on for that. Glad to be here. Oh, I guess you should introduce me first, but glad yes. to be here. <laughs> yeah, yes, I do. It's a long introduction, so here we go. My guest today uh, contains multitudes, as uh, Bob Dylan would say. He is an Emmy Award-winning coach, creative strategist, podcaster, teacher, social worker, and uh, what I personally like most about him, he is a writer. He uh, runs the he runs this blog will change your life, as well as this podcast will change your life. As the author of Be Cool, a memoir, sort of, Lost in Space, Orphans, and most recently, Upstate, which was previously published as the New York Stories. Uh, folks, let's welcome, straight from Chicago, Ben Tanzer. Hey man, how are you? Thanks for having me. And you know, it's funny, I feel like I probably wrote some chunk of that bio somewhere, but hearing it out loud, it never ceases to be embarrassing, so... Good to hear it again. I appreciate that, especially as I've been indoors most of the last year. Good to know there's a world out there, um, and hopefully everyone's as safe as possible. How are you? I am doing very well on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. As uh, we were previously discussing, uh, weather is very nice here, 40 degrees in Grand Rapids. Uh, how's the weather over in Chi-Town? Uh, it is dramatically improving. I mean... I guess if you live here and if you grew up in upstate New York like I did, you're never allowed to actually complain about the weather. I'll just say that it's been extraordinarily more like Chicago than the last couple of winters. But, you know, today, while kind of grim and bleak, uh, it doesn't seem to be as cold. So we'll take that. So basically, it's a normal February in Chicago, right? Grim and bleak. I guess it is. Yeah, it's funny. That's a very apt description. It is normal, uh, but just slightly warmer than it's been the last two or three weeks. Uh, yeah, and uh, as I said, folks, he's coming straight from Chicago uh, via phone because my internet connection is hot garbage. So uh, thank you, Ben, for uh, consenting to this phone interview. <laughs> Dude, I'm thrilled you asked. Of course, now I just have to implore you to title this episode Hot Garbage, because that'll put a huge smile on my face. I might just do that, my friend. You know me, I, <laughs> I like to please. That's awesome. That's already making me smile. Okay, Ben. Uh, yeah, dude, uh, 
How have you been recently? Anything new with you? I think it's very awkward to say, you know, well enough. I'm, I, I do, it's funny, I'm not very religious, but, you know, I feel really blessed. Everybody has stayed healthy in my nuclear family. My mother, my in-laws have stayed healthy. People are starting to get the vaccine, you know, doses. And so, you know, I feel like from that perspective, I'm doing just fine. Uh, just It's so hard to get caught up in your head about what's going well and not going well, at least for me, when I'm thinking about all the folks who are not, you know, in the safest or healthiest conditions. So I think we've been very lucky and, you know, very privileged the last year to primarily be pretty safe. And to be honest with you, be surrounded by people who are trying to be really careful, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and I'm very appreciative of that. I'm also appreciative of the people who've made sure I've had work so we can keep paying our bills. So I'm going to say... Ben Tanzer is in third person, no less, is doing just fine today. Okay. Okay, I'm, I was momentarily distracted there because uh, <laughs> it's a, not you, it's a, my mom's birthday today. And uh, I uh, tried calling her earlier to talk to her for a sec, but uh, she is busy with something. So I texted her, hey, I'll talk to you in like an hour or so, about to do a podcast interview. And she, has, and she has texted me back. Well, I'm, I appreciate taking priority over your mother. Please wish her a happy birthday for me, though. Yep, happy birthday, Mom. Uh, Ben's, ben wishes you the same thing. He does. He really does. Okay, uh, let's get to the big topic at hand. What I really wanted to talk to you about is uh, your new book. It's uh, called Upstate. It was uh, released last year in September. And uh, can you... Uh, Give me a quick summary of what the book is about. Yeah, right on, man. And I want to thank you for asking about it. You know, it's a re-release. And, and I always feel like, all right, how much did you promote a re-release? It seems a little something. But I very much appreciate it. You know, Upstate is sort of a somewhat revised, definitely refreshed, most definitely re-released version of a collection of short stories I worked on called The New York Stories in its original form. And The New York Stories was the product of, you know, 10 years of short story writing and three sort of separate, smaller, you know, almost, uh, what do they call it, like (laughs) mixtape electronic versions with a local Chicago publisher. Mm -hmm. Three collections over 10 years. I mean, I very consciously was writing stories that were interconnected with characters and sort of focused on the same fictional town, I mean, modeled on my upstate New York town, um, and did a collection of stories, maybe 10 or so. Then we did another 10, four or five years later, and then another 10, three or four years later. And so I consciously evolved each of those collections. The first one, I don't know if I had a particular mission except to try to capture the people who lived in a small town. Um, And and I guess that's not accurate. I think it was very much about the sins of the father. (laughs) Here I am sounding biblical, but you know, I was very interested in sort of what that looks like for the children and families. And I'm doing sort of the metaphorical father, but also literally fathers and how they may have behaved in this collection. And then the second collection, I had this idea that I would write about sort of the chickens coming home to roost, you know? So what happens, what happened to those characters in the first story? What happened to those fathers, their families, those protagonists? And then the third collection, and I can describe this more in a moment if you want, 
was really about what would it look like if a huge storm hit that town and sort of the flood, the town was flooded, right? And, and all those sins were kind of washed away and cleansed. And it really took on, I guess, I'll make this joke now again, 30 seconds later, more biblical proportions over time, though that was never the aspiration. The aspiration was always telling the stories of people, you know, I know, grew up with, hang out with, um, and it became these 30 stories. And then that publisher, which is a great publisher, Chicago Center for Literature and Photography, they went defunct. And, you know, honestly, and this is for all the writers out there, I asked that publisher if I could have my rights back. This is about a year and a half ago. And he was very gracious. No reason not to be, but very gracious. And I really wanted that book out in the world. And so I connected with the local, a local, another local publisher, Tortoise, who does terrific work, but also is very interested in helping sort of revive, refresh defunct books by some really big authors, bigger than me, authors I admire, Billy Lombardo, um, Christine Sneed. And so I reached out, I know that publisher, and I said, hey, are you interested in keeping that theme alive, saving books? And he did, he wanted to. So we spent a chunk of time prior to and leading into the pandemic, sort of revisiting all those stories. And here we are today talking about it. All right, uh... Well, folks, uh, if you want the full bio of Ben, you can visit his website, which I believe is tanzerben.com. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, but uh, let's let's go a little bit into your background, though. Uh, sure. As, as I've known you, is you've lived in Chicago, uh, but you but did you uh, previously live in New York? Yeah. So I grew up um, in upstate New York, really central New York. I have been corrected over the years, even by uh, family and friends. So I grew up in central New York where my parents who were from the Bronx and other places ended up, um, went to college in central New York. So I grew up in Binghamton, went to SUNY Albany. Now, uh, what do they call it now? U Albany, which is a state school there. And, you know, woke up, honestly woke up one morning, looked out the window. This is going to be a theme of the show, Garrett. It was very dreary. It's always dreary in upstate New York. And I looked out the window, I was a couple of months from graduation, and I just thought, I'm going to have to try something different, like this is not working. And so I decided on the spot that I was going to move out to the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco, Oakland, Ooh. Berkeley. It just seemed like that's what you one might do if they were trying to get as far away from where they were as possible. It also seemed like that's where people went. They went west. Go so west, I, young man. Pardon? Go west, young man. Exactly. It was like Manifest Destiny, or the narcissistic version. Anyway, so uh, about a month after graduation, um, I drove to California. And a friend of mine, an old college classmate, roommate, drinking buddy, you know, he had a similar idea for himself. And even though, and I really like this guy, especially now, even though he's probably the last person I would have driven cross-country with at the time, we drove cross-country at a great time. Went out there, was out in the Bay Area for about two years. Great time to be there, 1990 to 92, sort of pre.com, pre-money. Um, we lived like kings and queens, uh, uh, low-paying jobs. Uh, that's possible now. Um, and then I moved to New York City, where I had spent enormous chunks of my childhood. My grandmother lived in New York. My parents were from New York. And so it seemed like a natural evolution. So then we were in, my wife, now wife and I, in New York City from 92 to 94. Uh, another, it was actually a great time to be there. It was primarily before the Giuliani era, before 
I don't know, before they cleaned it up, though I'm not saying that necessarily in a positive fashion. I mean, I've heard uh, plenty of good stories about uh, pre-cleanup era New York. Yeah, I mean, it was great. We loved living there. And again, New York was another place, you know, you could still live there cheaply when we lived there. I mean, our apartment was a scary thing, but, (laughs) and then, you know, which I'm happy to talk about too, but. Was yeah, it uh? Was it like? Was it like the movie Taxi Driver? <laughs> Dude, not quite on that level. But, oh, okay. Uh, you know, the apartment itself was small, very hard to keep clean, endlessly overrun with cockroaches. Our neighbor, which is a little bit like Taxi Driver, actually, our neighbor was absolutely terrifying, and he blew up his apartment at one point. <laughs> uh, oh, there are stories from that building. I mean, even the small stories. I remember there was a guy who lived upstairs from us, a young guy. I got talking to him one day on the elevator. New York was friendlier then. Uh, anyway, this guy and I, are we allowed to talk about drugs on this show? Are my children going to listen? Anyway. Oh, oh af- I, absolutely. Say where you want. Use wire language. This is a free speech zone, my friend. That's right. Of course it is. Well, the funny <laughs> part is, and this really dates me terribly, somehow this guy and I got talking about the doors, and I do love the doors. I'm sorry. It makes me sound really old. Anyway, <laughs> He was really excited about this live CD. How he and I got in this conversation is beyond me. But he's like, oh, you got to come over and listen to the doors. So I did. And he had a ton of weed. And we smoked for hours and hours, which, you know, you can do when you don't have children. Um, And then I never saw the guy again. And then about five years later, I'm in New York City on the train. And the guy's sitting across from me. And I was visiting. We're already living in Chicago. And I looked at the guy, the old neighbor. And he goes, hey, man, you still live in the neighborhood? Because I was actually on the train that passed through our old neighborhood. And I said, no, I've been living in Chicago for several years. What are you doing? He goes, oh, I just got out of prison. I go, no kidding. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you know, just was running drugs internationally, got caught in Italy. <laughs> internationally. And I was like, no kidding. He was so, I'll just never forget this. He was so calm about it. Anyway, that was the kind of building we lived in back then. And then I always, always wanted to live in Chicago. And, um, I always, always wanted to try to get into University of Chicago for some kind of grad program. So I did get into the social work program, and then we came out here. Now it's almost 25 years. So, you know, 94, henceforth, we've been living in Chicago, which is why, you know, you know me as a Chicago person, which I'm honored to be as long as the locals are okay with it. Yeah, uh, what attracted you to Chicago over New York? You know... At the time, especially as a younger person, I had a fascination with, like, seeing and living in every big city I could. So, again, I had spent a ton of my childhood in New York City. I'd also spent two summers as a teenager, young teenager, living in Los Angeles, which this is during the 80s. It was just the fucking bomb to be there then. Uh, I'm dating myself again, but... I had a real city thing. I had a real public transportation thing. I loved San Francisco. I really loved New York. And I just thought, you know, how many cities can we live in? How many places can we go? <laughs> and Chicago had this, you know, it's just funny because if you live on the coasts, which I have, Chicago doesn't necessarily have an allure, but it really did for me. Plus, my mother had gone to University of Chicago for undergrad in the 1950s. And in San Francisco, I had been friends with a, a woman who had gone to Chicago in the early, you know, same time I was in college, late 80s. 
And, you know, they're both big influences me at the time, my mom and this woman I was friends with, and they both loved Chicago so much. So it just really took on an incredible allure. And I did have this little fascination, which I totally gacked, that in the 90s, maybe we would move from one big city to another every two years for the whole decade. But then we stalled out here. We got jobs. We had a good time. All of a sudden, we had children. Like, all of a sudden, this entire life emerged. Um, and we never got out. Yeah, uh... Yeah, uh, I uh, I don't think I've seen you in person since uh, we did we did our interview for your podcast, or should I say I begged you to be to be on your podcast? Some long oh. some long lines of like, "Hey, bro, I'm gonna be in Chicago for an entire week. Can I please be on your podcast?" That may have been the pitch, but you know, dude, that was great. I was already a fan of you and your writing, and I honestly, oh, thank you. You know, um, besides being a fan of yours, like it has been one of my rules of thumb, which isn't to say I don't drop the ball, that if someone's excited to be on the show, I want them to be on the show. So I've almost, this by the way shouldn't sound like uh, I am denigrating our exchange, like I've almost never said no to anyone. And certainly if we're friends, I consider us friends. You know, it is very funny, like there's nothing precious about it. If you write, if you're excited, man, I want to make that work. So I mean, I was thrilled you reached out. Yeah. I'm also really glad it worked out as well as it did. That was a great interview. You know, you're part of one of my favorite sub themes of this podcast will change your life. We did the walk and talk, right? So we were way yeah, we out of the loop and we walked all the way up to my neighborhood. Yeah, I was and about that. Solid hour conversation. It was rock star. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask then, uh, I guess without giving away, away where you live, uh, do you live in Chicago proper or somewhere out in the suburbs? Yeah, no, I guess it is Chicago proper. No, we're like downtowners for sure. I mean, I really love cities. Uh, my wife and I have always joked, um, which, by the way, is not anti-suburbs in general because I love suburbs and definitely not anti-Chicago suburbs. Oh, uh, man, I have had so many conversations with uh, Chicagoans about Chicago city dwellers versus the suburbs, you know. Yeah, no, it's a good it's a good conversation. All I was gonna say, which is funny to me, is that my wife and I, our running joke was if we want to live in the suburbs at some point, if we have to, I don't know what that would mean, um, why would we do it here, right? Then we would just go home. You know, she grew up in the suburbs of New York City. I grew up upstate New York. I don't consider that a suburb, more a small town, uh, or somewhat small town, but we always thought if we need to leave the city of Chicago, then basically we need to leave Illinois. Like, what's the point? We might as well be closer to our family. You know, the benefit mm -hmm. was living as we do downtown, right off the lake, near Lincoln Park. Um, and, you know, it's really funny because we are the worst kind. Well, we're the worst kind of New Yorkers in lots of ways. But <laughs> one of the funny things about moving here is even though we lived in New York while it was still reasonably cheap to live there, um, we uh, we got here. We found an apartment twice the size, five hundred times cleaner and cheaper, and just cheaper. And uh, we were like as spoiled as you could possibly be in that regard. You know, it was um, as soon as we got here, we we're like, oh my god, people live like this. Like I honestly don't really know what people think of Chicago in general, but my feeling is it's you know, and I sound like a real local, but. It's one of the greatest places you could possibly live. I mean, I feel that way about New York City also, and I felt that way about San Francisco when I lived there. So I can be a bit of a, I don't know if it's a Pollyanna. I just get very, very excited about things. But 
we moved here and we felt like we were royalty, not because we were special, but because we had enough money to live here. We couldn't believe it. And it was clean. I, I really can't stress when you've been living in a situation that doesn't feel very clean or very safe. Um, and again, we're extremely privileged. I want to be well aware of that. But then you all of a sudden you're like deposited in an apartment with a fresh paint job and an extra room and no cockroaches. Then you're like, holy shit, we are living large. Like, we really felt like we were living large when we got here. Okay, uh, actually I would like to make a slight correction there. When I talked about Chicagoans, about the city versus suburb thing, by Chicagoans I refer to either good friends such as yourself or Robert Dean or John Bruni, who I've talked to in the past, and, uh, well, basically random dickheads on Facebook on, like, Chicago <laughs> meme pages and that. If someone makes a comment they don't like, they're like, bitch, you're from the suburbs. No one cares about your opinion. Something like that. Meaning your opinion? Meaning you, Garrett? No, no, just random things you read off it. Got it. Well, it's funny, right? So we, I have two teenage sons, uh, beautiful kids, and they're very funny. Like, they take it personally when they meet someone somewhere who says, I'm from Chicago. They get very excited about that. Then they say, you know, so am I. And then the person says, yeah, I live in Naperville or somewhere Elgin, which are great cities. And then they're always like, what? You're not from Chicago. Like, <laughs> They're, they're like real locals in that regard, you know, and they're always offended, but they're also offended by kids who don't go to public school, so they have a lot more issues than I have, that's for sure. Yeah, 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 before we get back onto Upstate, uh, yeah, I do hope, plan on, or hopefully moving to Chicago within the next few years. There's various reasons why I'm not doing it now, but, uh, yeah, if I have to be honest, if I do move to it, Probably have to be somewhere out in the suburbs since uh, that's all I think I could afford. Yeah, I mean, again, I have had this odd luck um, or timing that I keep moving to places when they're not that expensive yet where you can find, you know, places to live. And so we've done that consistently. It's also possible that I have spent most of my adult life overpaying for housing because my expenses are pretty low otherwise. Uh, It'd it be that way money. sometimes. I know I'm speaking from a place of privilege. I mean, I'm very conscious about that. Uh, you know, but it is very funny. We keep moving places and I keep thinking, okay, we can afford this. Now, that also means we can't afford a million other things. We'll never have a car. Um, you know, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. We, you know, we need you here, for sure. Well, uh, well, personally, I don't mind. Basically... As long as I can afford to live there, and I guess as long as I'm, like, within walking distance of a CTA line, then I'm good. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, I mean, that, again, is the beauty of a city, a big city. If they have good public transportation, you can be most anywhere and get most anywhere pretty quickly. Again, we've lived there for 25 years. You know, we've never owned a car, and we get all over the place, as do my children, you know. You get on the train, you get on the bus, you get on the metro, and it's fine. You figure it out. Some things take longer, but <laughs> one way we've been able to do this. That's a, that's a very charitable way of putting it. <laughs> well, I do like to be charitable. You know that. Yeah. 
Uh, quick shout out to uh, the blog CTA Fails. Love that blog. I am not familiar enough with it. Clearly, I am a Pollyanna. Oh, uh, I'll send you a link. It's hilarious. But um, let's get back to the book. All right, it's yeah, uh, please. Upstate. It's a republication. New title, new publisher, and uh, I believe when I read the description, there's a new foreword in, in it. Yeah, so the publisher, who I love, let's give a shout-out to not just Tortoise Books, but the publisher himself, Jerry Brennan, who's an awesome guy, who I friend, was friendly with before. I think he's a great editor, has a great sense of, you know, great sense of style and art, but he, uh, you know, he got very excited about the book. He had gone to West Point. Uh, and had spent a night in this great. He had spent a night for one reason or another in a bar in upstate New York. And so as far as he was concerned, it was the greatest place he'd ever been. And, you know, I write a lot about those towns and those bars. And so upstate is filled with people sitting in bars. And I just think, you know, the stories really spoke to him, even though he wasn't local. So he wrote a great forward about his appreciation for the book, which I very much appreciate. And then, in particular, this night that he got to spend in a bar, which I love. Because, you know, whatever bar it was, I've been in it 20,000 times. All right. Uh, and uh, is this your uh, first, wo- first work that you've republished? That is a good question. I think that's mostly a yes, but sort of a both and. I mean, there was a book, my debut novel, Lucky Man. Uh, that publisher may be defunct too, but that was a long time ago. There was another publisher I worked with later, Artistically Declined Press. I did a book with them, uh, You Can Make Him Like You. And they Art- they, that sounds very familiar, that publisher. Um Oh, they're terrific. Ryan Bradley, Ryan W. Bradley was behind it, Paula Bomer. They did a bunch of great books, really was thrilled and remained thrilled to have connected with them when I did. Um, they they asked if they could reissue Lucky Man as sort of like a tribute to their favorite authors. So it was a re-release. I don't know if it was like, uh, I don't know if it was needed as much as they thought it'd be fun. And I was like, yeah, of course, give Lucky Man more attention. So that one came back out. Otherwise, uh, no, no other re-releases yet. But I'm always open to it. You know, you probably know this as well as do a bunch of your listeners. I mean, I've been really blessed with cool small publishers and middle, mid-sized publishers, but they really do go defunct all the time. Uh, yes. So New York Stories, uh, Chicago Center for Literary Photography went defunct, and right after that, Doc Street Press went defunct to put out Be Cool. So at some point, I've been sort of holding off, really pushing it. You know, Be Cool is going to need another home as well. Um, it's just out there in the world, and that's not good because it's not really out there in the world. I love that book. Of course, you know this as well. We're very protective of our books. Yeah, and, yeah, know, lucky man. More like unlucky man. Point. Yeah, it'll need a home <laughs> at some point for sure. Okay, uh, Okay, so I guess you... Well, I guess we can say that this is like your first major republication. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. How does it feel to do so, you know, republish a book? Uh, you know, it's really I mean it's it's really fun. What I will say, and you know, I'm a little bit older than you, so I also don't know if this is middle age. I'm certainly was always attached to these stories. Um 
it's been, it was really enjoyable. I mean, it was enjoyable because Tortoise is great. It was enjoyable because it's fun, as you know, to be in the mix of getting books out. But I will say, this may happen with other books. I don't know. But it was very emotional, too. Like, I felt nostalgic for those stories and the people in those stories. I was a little embarrassed how often I got sort of choked up as I was editing. It seemed... Uh, I don't know. I mean, actually, I'm not embarrassed. I guess I was embarrassed by not being embarrassed, but I was like, wow, what the? So I really enjoyed it. And I think it'd be interesting to talk to some other authors about this. I mean, one of the best parts is, and there is kind of a narcissism to it, but, you know, you get to enjoy your own work again. And that's really cool. You know, and I love those stories. And the very first set of stories really, I feel, open doors for me. And, uh, you know, I'm very appreciative of that. And so to go back and see those stories and see those characters and revisit them, I also am, like, very susceptible. And now I'm a parent of teenagers. I'm very susceptible for the issues, you know, that teens run into um, and always was. And, you know, I worked as a social worker for years around issues of child abuse, neglect, sexual abuse. And so I feel very... Uh, not the right word is, but I'm very sensitive to what teens go through, have to work through, have to struggle with. And that's certainly an ongoing sub theme of those stories, right? Mm -hmm. How do teenagers cope? How do they communicate? What are they dealing with? Um, it's not a YA book. I'd love to write a good YA book, young adult book, but it is very much a book about how we cope and how we grow up. And I'll always be intrigued by that. So in this case, it is being intrigued by one's own work, which is a little obnoxious, but really fun. It was really fun. Okay, and uh, you've uh, very quickly. Um, how how different would you say that uh, Upstate differs from uh, the New York stories? Like, uh, like not, not significantly at all. You know, it's funny when you refresh something like that. Not that the stories are so epic they can't be touched, right? Nothing, <laughs> everything can be touched. But what you see with a new publisher is that there's certain words they don't like as much or phrasing they're uncomfortable with. They may think about grammar differently. So I don't know that anybody would read it and think, wow, this is so different. Um, but we did do a sentence-by-sentence -sentence breakdown. So it feels different to me. I don't think it reads very different. Um, but again, it's also preferences. And if a publisher or an editor feels strongly about something and I don't, I rarely haggle with them over let's fix this or fix that. So Jerry, very thoughtful comments, maybe one or two things I said, no, you know, I know that feels right to you, but it feels off to me. But really, mm -hmm. it's little things, a colon versus semicolon, you know, a certain word versus another word. And people who know me, and you know, both personally, professionally, like, I don't spell very well. I'm not very good with grammar. So, uh, for real, I feel you, brother. Thank God for spell check. Oh, I know. And thank God for good editors. I mean, you know, it's funny if I'm helping my children with something, they're both very good writers, but they'll be like, well, how does, like, you know, they'll say something like, well, should this be a colon? I'm like, you are so asking the wrong person. And they're like, you're a published <laughs> author. I'm like, I know, but I work with people who do a much better job than I do with editing. Um, there's just no way around it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, those are the things you start to see, right? So say a previous publisher missed something or I made a mistake, maybe the next person gets it. That's what I'm writing to. 
Yeah, that's that's one reason why I'm very grateful that we live in the age that we do. Despite, like, a lot of my nostalgia for the past, like, say the 60s or the Beat Generation or any of that, it's like, yeah, yeah, that was, that has cool aspects and everything, but uh, they were using typewriters and there's no spell check or anything. If I went that way, um, yeah, I don't think I'd be less published than I am now. Yeah, that's a funny thing. Look, man. Every era has ways of improving and making our lives easier than the previous era. It doesn't mean things are better. It definitely means things are easier. I mean, there's all sorts of eras I'd love to be have been around for. It would have been awesome to live in New York City in the 70s, where I spent a lot of time in New York City in the 70s, or to be there in the early 80s when I was still in high school, you know, the art scene and all that. You know, on the other hand... It's really nice if you don't own a car, knowing that something like uh, Get Around exists or Zipcar. That's a very minor thing, but having an app that lets you find a car you can rent for five dollars for an hour—you know—that that, that mm-hmm. can be life changing. It's a minor thing, but you know, those are things that are real improvements. I hope. I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Have you uh, seen a documentary on Netflix called uh, Crack? No. What is that? Oh, it's a Netflix doc that they put out, well, moderately recently. And yeah, it's uh, just about crack. You know, the drug, the crack era during the 80s. New York is a big focus. That is when we lived in New York during the crack era. You know, we lived on 96th and West End. And on 94th, so two blocks south of us, almost like the, literally just if you could walk through those blocks... There was an entire low-rise building, and the entire building was a crack den where they were making crack. <laughs> the whole building had been, tur- you know, had been taken over by some group making crack, yeah, and that man. was all day. All- I mean, it felt like it was right out of, you know, the movies or something. But you were just like, "We're going to avoid that part of the block." Yeah, uh, not that anything ever happened. It was very safe and quiet. But uh, I had a friend at ninety fifth, so like one block behind us. Or south of us, and one block south of him was like an entire building they were using to make crack. Uh, which I don't say lightly. It wasn't funny. You know, I was a caseworker back then, and a lot of the kids I worked with, a lot of families I worked with, you know, they were struggling with and destroyed by crack. So it, there's nothing funny about it. But man, New York City during that era was really something. I had had a friend who was a psychiatrist, and he said they had designed like an assessment that they would use with children and families to sort of get a handle on mental health and other issues. And they had written it sort of pre the crack epidemic. And then when the epidemic broke, they could no longer use the assessment because the use of crack was so significant that it had completely skewed their ability to have the conversations they were trying to have. So it was a scourge, man. It was a real scourge. Yeah. Yeah. It was a very intense doc. Aside from- I'm sure it was. It was a scary time. I used to walk into drug deals when I was at work, and, you know, it's very intense. It was very, very intense, and a lot of families and communities were really destroyed by it. Of course, those are also families and communities, like here in Chicago, that, you know, a whole series of mayors and other people, other politicians, could have been doing a lot more to help in the first place, you know, and this is that endless cycle of neighbors neighborhoods being neglected you know and uh that was very much new york during that era 
yeah, I so yeah, I highly suggest you check it out if you uh, want some nostalgia, if, if you want to put it that way. Okay, right on. Okay, uh, alright, here's a good opinion question on republishing. Uh, okay, so your, uh, your experience with Upstate, the republication, has been very positive. Yeah, yes. uh, yeah, do you have any opinions in general of republishing work, good aspects, bad aspects? Do you even think that with some works it should even happen? You know, I think it's very personal, like everything. Uh, to me, the desire is to write endlessly, you know? I mean, I always have something I want to write. I'm always writing. I've never tried to pretend, though, there's probably a better word for this, that if I wasn't trying to get published, I'd write anyway. I mean, the fact is, I do know I would write anyway, but there's always been a focus on wanting to see that work out in the world, you know, and then wanting to support that work and wanting to read that work. So I don't see any downside. I mean, I think the question for any individual writer is, is this work they're still happy with? Do they still want to share it? Are they proud of it? You know, those are the questions to ask. Is it being put out by someone you want to work with? I really don't see a downside unless it's work, you know, you're no longer proud of or interested in. I also, I've always said this, I mean, I have a very healthy ego about my own work. I'm always really happy with it. You know, I, I mean, obviously things are always improved and can always be improved. And I hope I've improved over the last 10, 15, 20 years, but I feel good about what I write. You know, when people talk about writing to an audience, I mean, it is very funny. I tend to write for my own entertainment. I just hope someone will want to publish it. I rarely think about who's going to read it. I just want to read it. I want to enjoy it and I want to enjoy myself. And, you know, a push for me and one of the reasons I'm writing at all is a desire you know, to live the sort of best version of every day I can. And I've told this story before, but I woke up 20 years ago and happily married, still happily married, really like my wife, love my wife, was doing interesting work. And I was very unhappy. And I thought, what are you, you know, why are we, you know, why are you unhappy today? Or why are you unhappy? And I thought, I'm not doing enough. Like, I'm not doing things that are satisfying, that fulfill me. I'm really thrilled, but there's something missing. And it felt like what was missing, you know, was writing. And so that's what I got into. And so when you ask me that question, of course, I don't see any downside to refreshing or republishing. Again, unless you find the work doesn't stand the test of your personal time, or maybe it doesn't age well. You know, that's a really interesting question. How well is the work aged? Maybe you don't want it, you know, maybe it reflects ideals or ideas. You, know, you don't have it 50 that you had at 25. Those are all good questions to ask. You know, I mean, again, I don't have a good set of questions. I could probably think of some, but it is important to ask yourself, what does this work mean to me today? And if it still has meaning, if it still makes you happy, if it's still engaging, if you think people might still enjoy it, if you enjoy it, then why not? Put it out there. All right. Uh, final question on this subject. Uh, yeah. Any other work in the future that you plan on republishing? We'll see. As I mentioned, Be Cool doesn't have a home. Um, so 
at some point, I would, you know, I want to discuss that. Uh, Lost in Space, which is an essay collection on fatherhood, which I really like. Um, that Technically, that publisher still exists, but they don't totally exist. I'd like to get that out there. You know, I have the tension also um, that some of the work I've done that people like hasn't been widely marketed. And so might there be a chance to get a bigger audience? So I would be open to discussing most of those books, depending on who was interested in what we were talking about. Uh, yeah, yeah, brother. Uh, I must say that's uh, kind of one reason why I've, I've been sticking to self-publishing these past few years. I mean, for one, most of what I've been publishing is my Godin series, which is a superhero genre, pulp genre. Which, which in the grand scheme of publishing, whether it's big or indie, isn't very popular to begin with. Uh, very niche. So, uh, that and, uh, well, just everything that you described with, uh, small indie publishers, especially when, like, they go defunct or, you know, there's problems with, uh, promotions or, wow, just some really bad stuff that, we, that's too numerous to get into. It's one reason why I've stuck to self-publishing all these years. I'm still very open about it, but uh, I see a lot of this stuff, including uh, everything you just described, and it's all like, uh, I think I'll stick to publishing this through Lulu. Yeah, you know, it's funny. To me, the most important thing is that whatever level of control, of happiness, of reach that you're seeking, that's, the, you know, figuring out the publishing model that works for you is most important. And self-publishing gives people, you know, a lot of control, and you get to reap the benefits and beat yourself up if there are mistakes. And there's a lot of power in that. And I'm a big supporter of people feeling like they've got some mastery and control over their life. So you know, if that's working for you, that's awesome. I'm currently helping a guy, an author, who self-published his debut, get the book out in the world. And, you know, we're getting it out there. And he, you know, he that was the path he chose. It's a terrific book. I'll give it a plug. Memories live here. And I'm thrilled that I can help him get that out in the world. He'll decide, I guess, down the road if that's, like you, the path he wants to stay on. Um, I don't know. I, you know, it's funny because you mentioned free speech or whatever. Like, <laughs> I'm certainly a live and let live person in general. Um, if no one's getting harmed, I mean, that's always been my rule. If no one's getting harmed, you should definitely do your thing. And of course, with publishing, if you're self publishing, then the only person you're probably harming is yourself anyway. So uh, that's important, man. It's important, you know. It's really important to have a sense of control. It's very hard to feel like any one of us is in control, especially during a pandemic. So I ask everybody, what do you need? Like, what do you need from your day? How do you get there? Okay. Uh, uh, two things I want to point out. Uh, one, yeah. one uh, the whole free speech thing is just a joke by me. It, it's, it's mostly me satirizing like, a lot of right-wing, alt-right people who always say, you know, this is a free speech zone, blah, blah, blah. I know. That kind of bullshit. And uh, 
I must confess too, another reason why I love self-publishing is uh it, it may you may not know this until now, but I am an absolutely paranoid control freak who has to have control of his work at all times. Well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. It's out there, everyone knows. Well, perfect. And you know, look, I've always said too, this is not an original thought. Free speech is awesome. It doesn't give you the right to be an asshole. You know, but again, that's my rule of thumb. You know, how abusive is anyone going to be? Uh, that to me is ultimately the criteria for what we're allowed to say or do. And if you're a control freak, sure, maybe you want to, you know, understand that better. I certainly am. Uh, but self-publishing then is perfect for you, right? Oh, yeah. Well, well, t to the right, at least, free speech is more like, hey, uh, I want to stay on Twitter and call this celebrity I don't like a bunch of slurs. I don't, I'll but, never, I can't even relate to that. <laughs> yeah, whereas when, whereas when you and I do talk about free speech, it's more like, hey, uh, I got this book of really great stories, and you know, some of the content may be objectable to some people, but I still think it's worth putting out into the world. Right, well, of course, I don't understand going on Twitter and slurring anyone about anything. On the other hand, if I see politics or policies or decision-making that undermines people, again, is abusive, uh, exerts a certain power differential, you know, is misogynistic or homophobic or transphobic or racist, you know, I can't get behind that. That, to me, is not free speech, right? That's bullshit. And I will call your bullshit on that. And, well, that is a whole other topic we can. I know, that's a different show. But, but I didn't want to lose that thread completely. Hey, we could do that show sometime in the future, man. Okay, good. Right on. I'm there. <laughs> but uh, let's get into another topic. Everyone, uh, Upstate is out now, so purchase that. Please do. <laughs> yeah. And purchase many copies if that's your jam. I totally support that. For the love of God, please buy this book. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm not certainly not above begging for those kind of things. It never happened. Yep. Same here, brother. Same here. All right. Uh, next topic. Uh, I believe this is how I technically got into you, is uh, through the magic of podcasting. Yeah, right on. Yep. You uh, have two podcasts, one that you run and produce called This Podcast Will Change Your Life, another one which you produce and co-host, I believe, correct? That is correct. Yeah, dude, you're right on it. Yep, called the Blank Slate Podcast, which uh, you co-host with uh, Sam. God, <laughs> damn it! Sa please, God damn it! I'm so sorry, Sam. <laughs> yeah, it's Sam Tanios. Yep. Uh, I'll put this out there, Sam. If you ever talk about me, I'll give you a pass to mispronounce my last name all you want. I will let Sam know that. He'll be quite pleased. It's pronounced Shulky, but say Shuki, say Shuti, <laughs> however you want. It's a Polish slash wannabe German last name. You can fuck up as much as you want. I will let him know that. He'll be pleased. And he's a very polite dude, but he may want to take advantage of that. All right, then. Uh, <laughs> okay, jeez. All right. Podcasting, uh. What uh, attracted you to podcasting as a creative outlet? Yeah, dude, awesome question. A uh, couple of things. Uh, I think the primary thing was I was really interested, first off, in just how one markets anything, you know? 
so when my first novel came out, uh, the publisher was an awesome guy, but he was like, look, man, you're going to have to figure out how to market things. So early on, he's like, you should try blogging. And really, so I am an early, not the earliest, but certainly an early um, blogger, writer, person. And once I opened that door, I realized that there were all these sort of creative ways to not just talk about my work, um, but to talk about lots of work. I mean, anyone's work. And I realized early on, and now we call this good literary citizenship, which I'm a huge support of, but I could promote other people because I love them. So that's awesome because I've always, I'm super fanboy. But I could also promote myself just by promoting others, right? So I've always been very transparent about that. So I started blogging. I checked out MySpace. That's how old I am. And then uh, a local journal asked me to interview the people who led one of the early Chicago podcasts that I know of called Bad at Sports, which is a significant, has had a significant impact on podcasting. Um, it was an arts podcast. And I interviewed them on this like little digital recorder my wife had bought me, because back then I did the occasional journalistic piece like that. And as I watched what they were doing, I remember thinking, I probably can't patch together a whole show. Um, but, I mean, meaning a whole bunch of like segments, but I could keep interviewing people and record it. And I had always been obsessed, I brought this up in other podcasts and other places, with meeting writers and talking to writers. I mean, I can get caught up in celebrity culture as much as anyone, athletes, models, actors, whatever, but I love writers. And so I always loved writers and I always loved reading. And I started thinking, how hard can it be to do a podcast? Like, you know, like other things, how hard can it be to use Twitter? I mean, I'm an early adopter of almost every form of social media, some of which I've dropped, others of which I haven't. But I always had this idea that you could build like a fake media empire. And so it seemed like starting a blog just made uh, a podcast just made sense. And I loved it. I love talking. I love talking to authors. I love being out with authors. You know, a lot of the early shows were in bars. I was traveling for work. There's lots of drinking. Um, the show has changed over time. It's more refined. It's more long form. Which I'm happy to talk about any of that. Some of that conscious, some of it not. But as soon as I tried it, it was like my brain exploded in joy. And so I just started doing that podcast. So this podcast will change your life. It's probably 10 plus years old now, you know, going on 250 episodes. I, in the early years, maybe I did one a month or so. Now I'm pretty focused on two a month. And uh, it's just culminated. And so it's been around. And the new show, The Blanks, and that has primarily been literary people like yourself of all kinds, from all places, doing their thing. Um, no rules, nothing to be precious about. Uh, sometimes I like to talk to other podcasters. I mean, anyone who's sort of being creative, creating shit, being thoughtful, uh, being idea makers, like that's the kind of stuff that really, really excites me. Uh, and so it just kept happening. Uh, the new show, which I can talk as much as little as you want about, is actually a friend and a client. In the last several years, I've been freelancing and consulting and doing other creative things. And this guy has always been a small business, serial entrepreneur, rock star dude. And he decided he wanted to create a podcast about small business. 
and how people think about business. And it really coincided with what's one of my interests, which comes up on my own podcast, which is how does anybody make anything work? What's your career? How do you survive? What's your philosophy? You know, what's the how? Really, what's the why, I guess? And so he asked me, could I produce a show with him? And that was the first time after all these years, someone's like, I don't have the time. I don't have the skill set. I don't have the whatever. I just want to co-host a show. Can I pay you to produce it? So, you know, it's pretty low tech. I'm pretty low tech. It's a little scuzzy. Are we all pretty low tech? If you really think about it. Yeah. I mean, I like (laughs) scuzzy. You know, I really, it's funny because this only came to me as an adult, but you know, the punk aesthetic really appeals to me, you know, make shit, don't get caught up in being perfect, make it cool, make it loud, make it interesting. Like, those are things I aspire to and I'm good at. So, you know, this show for this client, especially Sam, uh, that show out of the gate is really starting to pick up some momentum. I'm thrilled and we're getting great guests. Uh, He's inspired me to want to refine my podcast game. I haven't quite gotten there yet. Um, But we're 30-odd episodes in, so that show we do one a week. And that show's been terrific. So, yeah, now I'm, like, podcasting all the time. And, uh, you know, I want to get better. I'd like to get better equipment, learn more. I've got an idea for a new podcast. I haven't had quite time to start. I'm going to try to elevate slightly more on that one. But that's another thing. I don't – I'm not very caught up in being perfected, though I want to be better at everything all the time. But I am caught up in evolving, you know. And so I want to see where this – the platform can go where I can go, what I can do with it. Uh, but yeah, so now I co-host my, you know, I host my show twice a month. You're a former guest. I've had awesome guests over the years. And now we do the blank slate like once a week and we're 30 odd episodes in. No, sorry, 40 odd episodes. In. So <laughs> it's pretty exciting, man. It's, it's really gotten some momentum. Okay. Uh, I guess we can go by podcast here, but uh, for this podcast will change your life. Is there any uh, particular guests or episodes that you would consider favorites or particularly memorable? Well, you know, like any parent, I love all the episodes equally. Um, <laughs> but of course, there have been good episodes. You know, there's a writer from California, Jen Pasteloff, who's now a best-selling author. Um, she was on the show six, seven years ago, five, six years ago. And I don't think I realized like, what a big following she had. And uh, that was one of the first shows that really blew up, like got really big. It remains the most, I don't even know what the numbers are anymore, but um, I realized there was the potential to really reach people. And I really love her and had her back on recently. So she's a favorite. There's an author, uh, Donald Quist. Uh, He's just a fantastic fucking writer. Um, And, you know, I had him on a couple of years ago. I really liked him. I liked his whole vibe. We've become friendly like you and I become friendly. And then, you know, I asked him to come back maybe six months ago uh, because I felt like there was just a lot of negative energy in the world. (laughs) And I wanted someone to come on who was thoughtful and calm and fucking smart. Actually, it's funny. He and Jen Pasteloff, I asked her to come back, even though I did want to talk about her new book also. So both of them stand out, but there's been lots of guests. I like uh, Wendy C. Ortiz, who writes essay and memoir. She's from LA. She's a favorite. She's been on a couple of times. Just her whole vibe is very appealing. Obviously the Garrett Schilke episode, the walk and talk that was genius. Um, 
the very first walk and talk we I ever did was with Scott McClanahan, the great, great, great oh. writer, Scott McClanahan. Yeah, that, co- that confirms was- it for me right there, because uh, I was trying to think of, like, the first episode of the podcast I listened to, and, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was that one. That episode was great, and it was funny. He wanted to come to Chicago and do a book reading. He wanted me to read with him. I think I helped him set it up. We went out drinking. We started walking. We took the train together. We walked in the rain, and I just recorded the whole time. And um, boom! I mean, it's very early in McClanahan as he's getting his voice, uh, and it was a blast. Like I loved it. It almost felt like a rom com. I was so happy with that recording. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the that was the one and only time that I met him so far was in Chicago during a reading. I uh, I don't think it was the one because I don't remember you being there, so I don't think it was the one that you're talking about. But yeah, that's when I met him. You know, we talked. I asked him, I think about what book fizz if it was going to be on Kindle or something. Yeah, nice dude. Yeah, great guy, fantastic writer. So that's and that's an early episode but just had like the kind of punk energy i wanted to get uh out of the show and it was accidental but he and i always had a good vibe in those days and again walking talking on the train um it's a it's a really it's a really special episode you know there's been more recent episodes i think about like the wendy c ortiz her first episode like you know i really try not to pry uh into people's personal lives. The show is to show is to show. The goal is to talk. I always read people's books. So you can always talk about the books. But, you know, the show has also found an energy around people's different challenges. You know, Wendy's memoir, Excavation, which is fucking fantastic, is about a relationship she had with a teacher um, as a young teen. Like, I didn't look for people to talk about what I thought were important issues, social issues, social justice. Uh, but that episode, you know, I want to talk about her book. So we had to talk. And I realized that when and where I could, it would be interesting for people to talk about, you know, interesting things, their challenges with mental health, their challenges with drugs or alcohol. And so I don't go looking for that, but there's been some really great episodes because people have wanted to talk about those things. And I'm interested, you know, I'm interested in what you have to write. I'm interested in your childhood. I'm not particularly interested in craft, so I love to talk about craft. It's not that kind of show. I mean, it can be, right? It can be, but it doesn't have to be. And so those shows stand out. Zoe Zalbrod, who lives here in Evanston, who wrote a terrific memoir about sexual abuse, you know, that was a really important episode to me. She's frank. She's transparent. That's an issue I care about. I was thrilled. I mean, she and I are friendly, but I was thrilled she wanted to talk about that stuff on the show. So anyway, I feel like I've been very, <laughs> very lucky, and there are lots of really, really good episodes and lots of interesting people. I mean, dude, look, you get to do a show. You're doing a show now. Like, it will always feel like a blessing to me. That's for sure. All right, how about a Blank Slate podcast? Any uh, episodes stand out to you there? Yeah, right on. Thanks for asking. So there's been a bunch of really great episodes. There's a woman who's actually also a client of mine, but her name is Sherry Frey, F-R-E-Y. I think I pronounce it wrong all the time. She's probably Sherry Fry. Just ahead of, you know, she's very focused on self-care and, you know, female empowerment and 
it was just a very touching episode to me, hearing her talk about her work and how it's evolved. Uh, that was a great episode. Earlier this week, we talked to a guy named Jim Bennett, um, who was just super, that's, he's the most recent episode, just like super inspiring dude. Uh, you know, spoke to a guy, actually, I mean, it's coincidental, but a guy named Jeff Bennett. <laughs> that episode is really fun because Jeff Bennett is a guy I've known since elementary school. And he runs a business, he's grown, he's still in central New York, and uh, he's just a very thoughtful, and the way I remember him is we were kids, you know, but very thoughtful, very forthright, very chill. That episode really popped, you know, we've had a lot of very, very good episodes, you know, I mean, what's funny is we may or may not even talk about someone's business, but we're very interested in how people think about the business and how they think about the world. And that has proved, you know, endlessly interesting. So certainly both of the Bennett episodes, as I mentioned, Sherry Fry, that was a very interesting episode. There's a bunch. And we've been very, very lucky with that show so far. I mean, lucky, I'm chasing people down. I'm doing prep calls. You know, we're doing all the stuff producers do. But we've really produced some really great episodes with some very interesting people. All right. Uh, that's great to hear, man. I'm uh, glad that you're doing very good on the podcasting here and uh yeah best of luck too on your uh next podcast well thank you sir yeah that's a mystery one but only for a moment not to be cute (laughs) unless i can actually get my brain turned on i don't even want to talk about it out loud but i am planning something totally different in the coming months if i can if i can literally carve it out of my head oh very nice all right uh final topic here man and uh I could tell from uh, when we were messaging, this is the topic you were really looking forward to talking about. You know, very excited. I could feel it coming out from the screen. Ah. COVID. You ready, buddy? Oh, yeah, I could talk COVID all day if you want. I have very strong feelings about COVID. <laughs> Let it go, is there, man. Is there a Let question, go. though? <laughs> uh, yeah, I do, actually. Um, And this is a throwback because uh, last year I did a my first ever two-part series called The COVID Life, where uh, where I called up previous guests and asked them about how their life has been since the pandemic started. So uh, I'll ask you the very first question that I asked them. You ready? Yeah. It's one of my favorites. Uh, when, when did uh, you realize that COVID was uh, going to be a bad thing? Like, did you uh, have an oh shit moment? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and this is going to sound super obnoxious, I'm guessing, to some. I would say early, early, almost immediately, March 2020. Um, as soon as Anthony Fauci, I mean, this part's coincidental, but as soon as he said, look, if people are willing to, and I know this is sometime in early March, as soon as he said, if people are listening, I want you to stay at home, that was all it took for me. You know, I am, and I say this unabashedly, though it could sound very dick in certain circumstances, like, I'm a rules follower, so as punk as I want to be, I follow rules. But You're a very I good a boy, very man. big believer in science, and I spent years doing prevention work and focused on data in best practice and evidence-based work. I ran a huge grant for, you know, eight years in partnership with the CDC. So 
like I'm a true believer in science. You don't have to hit me over the head. You just have to tell me this is what we know now from the data. And so I don't remember how early it was. Like I think it was literally the first week of March, last week of February. I mean, it was about a year ago now. Dr. Fauci came on. He said, look, I just need all of you minimally to shut down for five weeks, which people barely did. And my wife and I listened, and I said, let's shut down for five weeks. And my kids didn't go back to school. We didn't leave the house. And within two weeks, we were wearing masks all the time. And, you know, I'm not appreciative, right? Like, (laughs) I mean, it's funny saying it now. He said it, and I just accepted it. And, you know, it's funny. I would say to anybody who pushes back on that, that's not being a sheep, you know. If a leading scientist is like, please be cool for five weeks, I don't need to hear any more than that, you know? And so, yeah, I've been super COVID-focused. I mean, to me, the irony, for lack of a better word, and I know you especially work with people who don't believe this, everything the CDC said last March um, was accurate. I mean, it turned out that things have taken much longer than they expected. They've refined things. But immediately they said... If you can do this social distancing thing, which no one understood, that wasn't a common part of the vernacular, if you can wear masks, if you can stay home, if, and there's a lot of ifs, right? Some people have to go to work. I'm lucky enough to not have had to go to work because I was already working at home a lot. Um, So I'm lucky. I mean, I want to stress that. On the other hand, my wife lost both of her jobs. So she was not lucky. Uh, My kids are not lucky. They had to stop going to school. One of them did not get to have a grad, senior graduation. One of them didn't have an eighth grade graduation. On the other hand, they're both healthy and a lot of kids aren't. So I was in from the first week we were told to be in. And I would say uh, everything they said was accurate. It's just been a lot worse than I anticipated. Uh, and that's unfortunate. But yeah, I mean, look, nothing. If you go back and look at all those early press conferences, Nothing they said turned out to be incorrect. You can decide you don't care, which I said to you before. That's a, that's a certain kind of argument. You can tell me this is an issue of rights. It is not. You don't have any right to make anyone sick. Fuck that. Uh, but everything was said was accurate. In other countries like New Zealand, for example, Australia, Japan, even though Japan fumbled it a bit out of the gate from what I've read, they just shut down. And now they're back to living normally and people aren't dying. And they certainly don't have 500,000 dead. I mean, when people say to me, sorry, I can easily get worked up, so I will cut myself off. When people say, I don't know anybody who's gotten sick or died, which, by the way, I find that fascinating because I know so many people who've gotten sick. Oh, same Um, here. Same at my job. You know, so I'm not going to argue with anyone about that. It's possible you live in a place you haven't met anybody. I have friends all over who've gotten sick or have family members who've gotten sick. Um, But... There are half a million people who died because of COVID. That's not a political statement. That's data. And if that's not a big enough number for you, then I know that means we're communicating about COVID poorly. But to dismiss that, to me, is about the highest offense there can be. Those people died. And that's not, again, it's not political. That's not about either party. That's not about the CDC. I just know that we now have half a million people dead in 12 months. And so please don't tell me this is not a real thing. I don't understand it. I don't accept it. There's no discussion about that. Yeah, uh, you're mentioning your kids there. Uh, how about right now since uh, last time I last time I checked, since I uh, try to keep up on Chicago news at least once a week, 
there's a, currently a battle on whether schools should open or not. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. The focus is on really on K through eight, but that has been an ongoing battle slash discussion. Yeah. Uh, will you be sending your kids back to school? You know, it's very tricky, man. So nobody's asking high school kids to go back to school. So I'm in the awkward, weird position of, I don't have to send my ninth grader anywhere. They're not even really talking about high school. That will change. Um, I will let my ninth grader decide, though, if there's some flexibility. I would not have made him go back this spring if he didn't want to. Uh, I'm happy that the CDC and others seem to be reporting that there are ways for kids to go back to school safely. Again, if you're wearing masks and respecting social distance and people are getting inoculated, man, right on. So, I don't know. The funny thing is, my older son got into college, which is wonderful. If that's your thing, that was his thing. Mm-hmm. And the University of Illinois really wanted, and I'm sure some of this is financial, among other things, but they wanted everybody to come to campus. So, he's been living, you know, on campus, fall semester, now spring semester, but not going into a classroom. Um, U of I has been very cutting edge, and it's been fascinating to watch them. So, you know, I had my wife and I had decided that we didn't have to talk about this in depth. If he had said, I need to live at home for the fall semester, I don't feel safe, we would not have fought with him. But we also felt insistent he should go and just be as careful as possible. So it's been a very interesting dance, and I think both the kids have been more or less thriving in really terrible situations. Like my younger one, the high school he's in, you know, he's basically at the computer 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day with minimal breaks and a lunch break. Oof. But he's done fairly well. The older one, his schedule's all over the place, but he's wearing a mask, he's in a dorm, he's not going to class. But just this week, one of his friends got COVID. So uh, it's scary, dude. I mean, that's the other thing. It's still very scary. Uh, but we definitely insisted he go to school unless he was going to push back, and he didn't. Yeah, uh, how, how about uh, vaccine-wise? Have you or any of your family members gotten it or scheduled so, yet? My mother got it, as did my in-laws. They're all in their 80s. So thank God they live in other states, New York, Pennsylvania. Um, my older son works in the cafeteria at his school. And so he is, he is treated as an essential worker at University of Illinois. So he got the first dose. Um it seems impossible that my wife or I or my younger son are ever going to get a dose. I guess we will eventually late spring or summer. And I really want to stress, and this is, you know, it's okay with me if we have to wait. Our lives exist indoors. It is a drag, but it's cool. Uh, I don't have underlying conditions. I'm not a child. I'm not an older person. You can you can save me for last. And by the way, I'm not trying to sound like a hero. Like it's, it's fine. I just don't know when I'm going to get one. And Illinois rollout has been terrible, from what I read. It certainly. Oh feels yeah, good. it's been more, it's been terrible all over. Yeah, and it's been terrible all over. So, you know, but I'm certainly pro vaccination, and my understanding is so far it's been highly successful. So right on. They just haven't they just haven't vaccinated very many people. All right, uh, we talked about your family. How about uh, Chicago? From your from your perspective, how has the pandemic uh, changed the third largest city in the United States? I mean, dude, you know, it's funny. The early months, it was like a ghost town. 
And it was really crazy. You know, and I'm a runner, so I've been running all over. And, you know, to run on the streets, I mean, it's, it's slowly shifted. And you'd be downtown, and there's just no cars, there's no people. Like, that has slowly shifted. But, you know, it's really tricky. People are barely on the trains and buses. I haven't been on public transportation literally at all since March 2020. Um, and so we just walk everywhere or get a car. Uh, I just don't feel safe. And so there was like a medical crisis I had to deal with in March 2020. And I took the train because it was a, uh, it was time sensitive and I haven't, haven't since. And I haven't, you know, I, mean, I also teach one of my side also is teaching. I've been in a classroom. So I mean, Chicago is very, very weird. Our neighborhood, I think has not been mask centric enough. So it's very stressful. Other neighborhoods seem to be better. So I don't know how that works. I do think not Generation X, which I am, and not Generation Z, which my children are, but the millennials slash Gen Yers seem to be a little less into masks, and I think the data supports that. And a lot of those, that age group lives in our neighborhood. So I have found that sort of stressful, you know. Um, As a millennial, that is very sad to hear, but not surprising. Yeah, so that's a little weird to me. I, I do say that with judgment, but... You know, I have them going out a lot. So it is tricky. You know, when you go out and half the people you see aren't wearing masks, it's impossible not to think, how the fuck are we ever going to get out of this? And this idea that the vaccine will save everything has always been very upsetting to me. But that's why we have half a million dead people in America as of this week. And that's why, right, we still are going to be shut down primarily through the fall and really into next spring, right? We're probably a year away from being somewhat back to normal. That's what all the data is saying. So here we are. Here we are, man. All I right. just want to stay healthy. <laughs> I want everyone else to stay healthy. Like, that's the thing. This is something I'm not very narcissistic about. I want everybody to be healthy. It's fucking scary. If people don't think it's scary, I don't understand what they're reading or not reading. All right. Uh, and, and if you have an opinion... What do you? Th- how do you think uh, the mayor of Chicago, Lori Lightfoot, has done? Like, oh, it's so painful. You know, someone tweeted the other day: politicians who've been much better than I would have expected. Governor Pritzker, and Governor Pritzker has been great. Politicians who've been less good than I expected. Lori Lightfoot, she doesn't quite seem ready for prime time. I hate that. I really like her, and I like her brusque style. I think she's really smart. It doesn't feel like she's been up to the task. Now, one thing I would say, though, is, and I would say this about most politicians, clearly other countries will prove this wrong. Most people were not really sure how to handle an epidemic. Um, so I, I'm willing to you know, give the mayor a little room there. I think most mayors don't really know how to handle protests. Certainly riots. Oh um, boy, yeah. Funny you should bring that up because uh, wasn't the I think there was a recent report that said uh, Lightfoot was uh, funneling money that would be used for COVID into the Chicago police. Well, that's a whole other thing, right? So she shifted or redirected money that was for COVID relief. So you know, when you redirect money, that means people who had problems getting work with rent with groceries, they weren't getting money that should have been going to them. So there is a level of mismanagement that seems, uh, makes me sad. I don't know that I'm 
totally schooled enough to sound as smart as I'd like to about it, but she has not totally felt ready for prime time. I didn't think Rom was up to the job either. Well, you know? uh, well, pandemic aside, from what I've, from what I've uh, observed from Lightfoot, and, uh, well, basically when I got into Chicago, when I started visiting, it was when uh, Rahm Emanuel was mayor. So mm-hmm. her, him and Lightfoot are like the two mayors I'm most well known of. It seems like Lightfoot, along with Emanuel and uh, Daly, and like past past ones like Daly, they all kind of seem to follow the same pattern of uh, mismanagement, fuck-ups, and uh, seemingly hating the public school system. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny, dude. You have a job, I've always had jobs. Like, you constantly meet people or work under people who are not prepared to be leaders, right? And that, I think, is one thing you're seeing. Rahm Emanuel's probably a great investment banker. He's probably a great chief of staff, though I don't think he did Obama any favors as a whole. Oh, uh, God. I hated that line, too, about, well, Rahm Emanuel's great because he's Obama's front. Right, I mean, well, it's just obnoxious. So, you know, Lori Lightfoot, I think, is a great lawyer. I think she's really smart. I really like her, but... That doesn't mean you're ready to be mayor. I mean, that I, you know, that to me is really the discussion. You know, when I, I made the reference prime time, but it's really about are you prepared to be in charge? You know, my again, I wish I had more data. You know, my experience is most people aren't ready to be in charge. Which, by the way, is not even intended as a criticism. It's have you had the right jobs, the right mentors, the right experiences? You know. That's the question. If you haven't, then you're going to have problems, going to have problems. And Illinois, especially after having lived in California, New York, seems especially poor at identifying good leaders and people who aren't corrupt. So I don't think Rom or Lori are remotely corrupt or Pritzker. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but there's a lot of corruption in this city, in this state, and there's a weird sort of pride in that. And that I always find amazing. Yeah. Uh, when I made a post... Uh... I don't know, a month or two back, about uh, our former governor, Rick Snyder, who's currently on trial right now for uh, his part in poisoning Flint. He's, he's a fucking criminal. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But he's probably going to get away with it, just like Trump. But, uh, he's, but, he's, uh, got he's got blood on his hands. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He's, oh, God. He's like George Bush-level bad. But, uh, but one thing that uh, fellow Chicago and... Chicago writer John Bruni pointed out was that uh, Illinois governors have a tendency to leave office in handcuffs. Oh, it's incredible. It's I mean, dude, it's incredible. It, again, that's why I was sort of joking. Like, it's almost like a weird badge of pride here. Like, I'm a fucking crook. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, and it's amazing. It's really amazing to me. Yeah, I know. That was, that's kind of one of my favorite aspects of uh Chicago history up until today is just that it's a, what is it, big Democratic machine or something that they label it? Such yeah, a, what does he call it? Yeah, there's a, it is always the Democratic machine, but there seems to be another word. Yeah, totally I know, I'm missing it, but especially with like mayors like John Daly who like really empathize, emphasized it. But uh, it's one of my favorite things. But, uh, Another funny aspect uh, that I have put this question online is that uh, 
as you're aware, our uh, our current governor, Gretchen Whitmer, really uh, did her best to contain the pandemic, and uh, so much so that uh, she almost got kidnapped for it by local militias. militias. Yep. I uh, kind of made a joke of uh, who was the better girl boss, Gretchen Whitmer, who shut down an entire state, or uh, Lori Lightfoot, who shut down the third largest city in the U.S.? You know, I want to say, by the way, I think Lightfoot has done a very good job around COVID. Um, I think she's done a less good job around understanding crime and really, which is a consistent thing with the mayors in the city, sort of understanding and addressing what the neighborhoods that have been neglected for so many decades need, right? Um, I think Governor Whitmer, from what I've read and seen, was trying, and I think very successfully, well, not successfully, but was trying to prevent COVID from spreading. And, you know, your state in particular was not having it. And it's stunning to me. Oh, no. I know. Michigan is a... I say this as a Michigander, so uh, Michiganders who love this show, um, sorry, it's sad but true what I'm about to say, but, uh, yeah, Michigan is a very backwater right-wing state that somehow, for some reason, keeps voting in Dems and generally, well, unless you count the 2016 election, generally votes blue. And, uh, that's, and that's why we got so many, you know, militias and white supremacist organizations. Yeah, you guys are definitely fans of your militias there. Oh, yeah. We, oh, yeah, we can't get enough of them. Well, uh, and, you know, it's interesting seeing Merrick Garland speak, who I really admire and have always admired. But uh, you, again, I'm going to the science. I'm not going to my emotions, which I will be happy to go to also. But if there's a bigger issue in this country than white nationalism and domestic terrorism, I don't know what there is. I mean, there are lots of issues, including COVID and other inequalities from race to gender. But Jesus, domestic terrorism in this country is terrifying and has basically gone at least outwardly uh untouched and un i mean again i know people are always doing things behind the scenes and you know but wow wow uh, the country uh, gets a handle on that uh you're gonna enjoy this little michigan factoid uh twice since they uh had the attempted insurrection uh m live which is like our big media conglomerate here Makes up, you know, the biggest papers like the Grand Rapids Press and whatnot. Twice they've interviewed, like, two guys who took part in it. And as far as I know, neither of them have been arrested by the FBI for it. It's, you know, man, it's it's so offensive. I mean, it's amazing to me that in 2021 or 2020 or literally any time in the history of the universe, they could show the pictures of the people who are in the capital of Michigan and not think, Oh my God! Someone has done something terribly wrong that we're having that we're watching this happen live. I mean, it was terrifying to me what happened, and not because I was scared. I mean, I'm in my high-rise building in Chicago, but the idea, you know, the idea that these guys with guns could march up to the Capitol and no one's going to stop them—how is that even possible? Well, it kind of helps when you when the police are on their side if not part of the militias themselves. Well, that I'm going to stay away from, because that I don't know enough about. But, 
it's very it helps let's put it that way and it's just dangerous you know it's just dangerous <laughs> all right well final question on this topic and this is my second favorite question aside from the first one that i asked you um when do you think this uh pandemic will quote-unquote end and uh what do you think a quote-unquote post-covid world will look like that's a big, awesome question. I know, that's why I like asking it. From what I read, and it would be awesome to be a scientist right now, things will probably not feel pronouncedly, if that's a word, different until about a year from now. So that seems pretty likely that we're looking at spring of 2022. You know, that things will start feeling better. I'm sorry to use my social work language, but things will start feeling better during the summer uh spring slash summer the fall winter will remain a little shaky but somewhere by next fall winter most people will be vaccinated and it'll really be spring of 2022 so a year from now it'll basically be two full years which i from what i read is probably not significantly different than the spanish flu epidemic you know from 100 years ago except that less people will die so my understanding is that seems like where we're going to end up with that. So that that's my first piece. I think what you're going to see differently, and what I hope, because I hope people will learn, right, is one, the world of work will be different. People will have more respect and understanding and belief that, hey, people can work at home. They can work anywhere. And lots of people are already doing that, which is great. You know, I believe people will be more focused on their health and being careful and washing hands and wearing masks. I think that mask thing is going to linger. Um, on the other hand, knowing human beings, everyone's going to be rushing right back into crowded concerts and crowded clubs and doing all that. What I think is going to be interesting, to me the most unknown part, is going to be, will there be more respect for science? Will there be more respect for vaccinations? Um, that's the part that remains unknown is a lot of people want to push back on those things. And I don't really, I don't really understand it. I understand elements of it, but um, that's unfortunate, but I do think work will look different and school will look different. I do believe that there'll also be a lot of things we'll just jump back into and somewhere in the middle, I think there really will be a question of, do we trust scientists? Do we trust politicians? And I, I think that remains open to interpretation. Alright, uh, I agree with a lot of that, and, uh, here, here's some what I add. Here's some I, what I would add to it. Um, I think there will be more tighter government control, especially with surveillance, because see, seeing how, like, the activities from 2020 throughout, up to, like, the insurrection, yeah, it's gonna be bad. Like, George W. Bush-level bad Patriot, Patriot Act kind of stuff. I think there will be that. I uh, think there will be more feuding with China. You know, a quote-unquote Cold War II kind of scenario. Since we're going to be pointing fingers at them for probably all time now about this. You know, you caused this virus. Right. And, uh, yeah, and I, I have to say, I'm, I'm always going to push back on the extent, whether not all the information was shared, it's going to be very unfortunate if the universe as a whole can't understand that in the universe of climate change 
and other steps that countries are unwilling to take that pandemics may just be a thing of the future anyway. Oh yeah, I fully agree with that one too. And, that, uh, that kills me. I mean, it's just so unthoughtful. And again, whatever people's opinions on China are, this idea that we're just going to hold them responsible for everything because that's so convenient and lazy is really, really unfortunate because there's a lot of work that needs to be done across the board. Yep, and uh, in regards to COVID, uh, God, as much as I hated the comparison at the beginning, I still do, I think it will become like the flu in a way where uh, we'll have to get like a shot every year for it. I mean, I was kind of hoping at first it would be kind of like uh, these diseases that we've mostly wiped out, like measles or smallpox. Like, it's mostly gone, but then it, like, pops up somewhere in, like, these weird anti-vax communities. But uh, I'm pretty sure now it'll be, especially with how it's mutating, that uh, it'll be something that we're going to deal with technically the rest of our lives. And, like, the flu shot, uh, we'll have to get a shot for it every year. And, uh, like the flu, it'll, well, we kind of already did this in 2020. It'll be like, oh, what's that? You die of COVID? Well, you should have a better immune system. Sorry. That's, that's kind of how I see it, unfortunately. I think there'll be a level of it lingering and we'll be able to address it. And frankly, the question will be, will we, this would probably be the other comment I have, which ties into my, previous response which is will we be better will we be willing to be better prepared for the next pandemic because it would apparently it would seem there's going to be one. <laughs> oh yeah undoubtedly and uh the final one and uh well i read i read this in a british tabloid so there you go take it for what it is and uh i was excited when i first read it but uh now i'm not so sure but it made this bold claim that uh, once COVID is quote-unquote gone, or cured or whatever, that we will become like the Roaring Twenties, which, you know, being in isolation and away from people, we will just become completely debaucherous. You know, all the drugs, all the sex, all the dancing, because like, hey, we're finally free. Man, did, man, we missed this. Let's do more of it. Which, I think there'll be there'll be an element of that. I mean, and really, I think there's been a huge increase in alcohol and drug use, you know, during the pandemic. Anyway, at least in the limited pool of people I interact with, but there will be some of that. What I hope, of course, is that it doesn't overwhelm the dialogue around. Okay, what are we going to do next, and how are we going to prevent this next? Because you know, this is. I don't think this is going to be an isolated thing, and then in a hundred years, we're going to say, "Oh my God, there's another pandemic." If climate change is real, which I believe it is, this is all tied together. And uh, I hope we don't party so much that we ignore the fact that we have work to do. But yeah, that's I know. me being super preachy. And that may be the way <laughs> we finish this conversation. But, but it, And if so, I apologize. <laughs> yeah, well, it appeals to me because I like the party and, well, be hedonistic. But on the other hand, I'm old enough to, well, think, think things a little bit more rationally now. But, hey, I guess we'll see what happens. That would seem to be a thing, yes. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, technically, that's the last topic I want to talk to you about, but there's one last thing that I want to quickly go go about. And, I thought, I, and I thought about this when we were talking about 
Chicago as a whole. Um, like I said, you live in Chicago, and it's technically the middle of winter. Have you, uh, in your neighborhood, ever had to deal with the phenomenon known as dibs? Oh, man, I knew you were going there as soon as you were going there. <laughs> uh, well, for... for does, not think, does not seem to be a thing in this neighborhood. All right, um, well, very very, very, oh, quick, very quickly, for people who don't know what I'm talking about, dibs is a practice where uh, you dig out a parking space in front of your house or in front of your street or wherever, and uh, since you dug it out, you feel entitled to it, so you put <laughs> shit around your parking spot, like a chair or cones or something, that indicates that your, it's your spot, you called dibs on it. And uh, it has led to many a conflict over the years, particularly with, like, people just ignoring it and then getting their car vandalized. But uh, there's a lot of great YouTube videos on it. It's one of my favorite things about Chicago. It's an awesome thing, though I have to say. Again, I'm not <laughs> awesome. It's not a thing in our neighborhood, and we don't own a car anyway, but I have to say... It offends me so profoundly. I, I cannot stand it. I hate that it exists, but that is ridiculous because, again, it has literally no impact on me. Yeah, I, I too think it's ridiculous, but the, at the same time, uh, I understand it. Absolutely. Look, if my hometown had something similar, I would celebrate it. So I'm not above it. I just think, oh my God, how can this be a thing? It's so obnoxious. I mean, again, I'm not affected by it, so that's just me. That's just me complaining unnecessarily. Though I'm glad you teed that up. Yeah, have you uh, ever seen it? Like, have you ever gone through neighborhoods with uh, people oh, have yeah. like oh, like so Christmas statues or something indicating oh, yeah, where they park? Dude, it's all over the place. And again, it doesn't happen to be where we live, but when you get into the real like neighborhood neighborhoods, oh yeah, it's everywhere. It's <laughs> it's it's crazy again. <laughs> I find it so, I would, would probably be the accurate thing to say is, I find it so offensive and awesome all at once. Yeah, there's this old YouTube vid, I'll send you a link to it later, that some Chicago comedian made years ago where uh, his character was just calling dibs on everything and putting a chair on it. Like, when he went to the gym, he put a chair on the treadmill. He uh, went to a party and found a girl he found attractive and he put a chair on top of her calling dibs. It's it's hilarious. Oh, that's uh, it's that's hilarious. Great. Yeah. Alright, dude. Uh it's been over an hour and a half. I uh believe it's time that we end this conversation. Well then we will end it. Dude, it was just a thrill. We I like to talk to you anyway. So here we recorded it and hopefully you we have some nuggets for your Legion of fans and they can enjoy that. <laughs> Indeed, a Legion of fans they are. Shalkyites, as I call them. That's good. It's good to have a name for your fans. Yep. So, all right, all, but, all right, Ben. Uh, promo time. Uh, is there any uh, websites you want to advertise? Any uh, books? Obviously, you know we talked about it. Look, man. There's anything you would like people, to promote? I'm thrilled when people want to get upstate. I'm really glad that a book can be re-released, and you know, folks like yourself want to talk about it and buy it. It's very humbling. I always invite people to come to TanzerBen.com, which is my website, and, uh, you know, see what I'm up to and see if they have any questions and check out the books and other activities. You know, I'm all over social media. I really do enjoy it. So you can find me on Twitter, 
the Tanzer Ben. You can find me on Instagram. I think that's Ben Tanzer. Like, you can find me very easily if you want to. And if you want to, of course, I am absolutely thrilled to connect with you. So that, that I would say, you know, unequivocally. All right, folks. And uh, if you want to find me, as always, uh, GarrettShalky.tumblr.com is the main place to find all my work and links and all that. You can find me on Twitter. My personal is Garrett Sh- at Garrett Schalke. The podcast Twitter is at Schalke Podcast. And, uh, yeah, you can find me on Anchor, Spotify, Breaker, Internet Archive, a few other places I'm not listening. Oh, and uh, recently you just got put onto a Listen Notes and, uh, God, Audio Mac, I believe it's called. I'm uh, very determined. I'm very determined to have my podcast on uh, every platform that allows free, unlimited uploads. That's kind of my new goal. Dude, good goal. Which, by the way, then I should also promote this podcast will change your life, which you can always find and access at tanzerben.com and then the Blank Slate podcast, um, which is off of the uh, Human Elements website. But again, luckily, like yourself, these podcasts are, you know, all the places people go to find podcasts. So you you can find us, and we'd be thrilled to have you do so. Yep, and, uh, well, I would like to uh, dedicate this episode, too, because to uh, the poet Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who uh, just passed away yesterday. Yes, absolutely. God, incredible. 101. Yep, and according to the article, I think he was, like, a month or two shy of 102 years old. But, yeah, a uh, great poet. Great publisher, uh, great beat beat generation example. Mm-hmm. Well, that's something yeah. to aim for for sure. Yep, just passed away yesterday, and uh, well, rest in peace, brother. Yeah, man, right on. And dude, thank you for having me. Yeah, you know, it's always great to connect with you. I'm always happy to talk about what I'm up to, and it's fun just to rail on some shit too. You know, I'm inside a lot, like a lot of you. So I welcome the opportunity to talk. Yeah, indeed, I would. Uh, Love to have you back on, Ben. Okay, bud. I'm going to hold you to that. All right. uh, Thank you, Ben, for being on. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, Check out my stuff. Check out Ben's stuff. Go read Lawrence Ferlinghetti's work. He more than deserves it. And uh, that's the end of this podcast. Here is the outro song.
to get out ahead So I played by the rules and here I sit like a fool Just to try to keep myself well fed All I wanna do is move to the country And start a new life with you We could have a garden, maybe one or two daughters And raise a couple chickens too Or we could grow old like in the stories told when we were Oh